I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. The Chenrezig meditation or Avalokiteshvara meditation of Tibetan Buddhism, of Adriana Buddhism, of the Diamond Path, Tibetan Buddhism, including the four boundless heartitudes, the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, however we like to translate that word, the four faces of Buddhist love, Karuna, compassion, unconditional compassion, Maitri or Metta, loving kindness. Mudita, sympathetic joy or rejoicing in the good fortune and virtues of others, and spiritual detachment or equanimity equal to all, impartiality equal to all, the four faces or arms of Buddhist love, as represented, as represented by the four arms of Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva Bodhisattva, the Grand Bodhisattva, embodying the Buddhist qualities of unconditional love and compassion, joy, forgiveness, and so on, all the so-called gentle virtues. Avalokita, Chenrezig, Kuan Yin in China, the most popular form of Buddha in Far East Asia, Kuan Yin, the female Buddha goddess, as they call her. Kanon in Japan, Kanzion in Korea, by any other name, she's still a sweet. So cultivating, of course, there are no external gods or goddesses in the Buddhist way of thinking, but cultivating these qualities, emulating them, making the affirmative resolves to, may this be so, may we be like that. Cultivating, bhavana is the essence of Buddhist practice, as I'm sure you know. Not meditating on loving kindness, cultivating loving kindness is the Buddhist way. Metta bhavana, as we say in Pali in the East. Cultivation of loving kindness, cultivation of compassion, cultivation of mindfulness. That's the definition of meditation practice or spiritual development in the Buddhist tradition. Putting the 
responsibility firmly where it belongs in our own hands, where it is anyway. So we can awaken, so we can develop, so we can practice and reap the results. You know, Buddha's teaching, his famous teaching, and I'm sure you're all well familiar with it. I can see in your auras many Buddhist book titles and other tchotchkes that you had home hanging on your walls and, you know, many veteran of foreign retreats, medals and things like that, especially over there, VFRs, veteran of foreign retreats. And we love to get together and exchange our war stories from those retreats. Oh, the food. Oh, no hot water. Oh, my room was so small that I, even caddy corner, I had to be like a jackknife rather than lie flat at night. Oh, the mosquitoes during those one-hour non-moving vows. Yes. That's why I'm, I'm very much in favor of Buddhism in America. <laughs> Not that we don't have our own sufferings to bear. Oh, this chair, these pews are so hard. Oh, my God. And that water fountain, the, the water is this. Not even, you know, Perrier. <laughs> Not to mention all the inner crap we carry around with us that we have to deal with wherever we are. Buddhist teachings, famous, you know, the renowned and effective teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth truth. If I had a blackboard or, you know, some modern educational tools, I could just beam it right out there in space holographically. Buddhism 101, we all know the Four Noble Truths and the Fourth Truth. The path to nirvana is the Eightfold Path, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, Eightfold Path, the Eight-Step Recovery Program for Samsara-holics through which we can recover our true life, our authentic life of freedom and delight, as Buddha did, as millions have. The four truths, the, eight, the fourth truth, which is the Eightfold Path, and the six or ten paramitas, the transcendental virtues. I don't like to translate them as perfections, too perfectionistic. Virtues, transformative practices, the bodhisattva virtues, the ten paramis or six paramitas, however we talk in Pali or Sanskrit, which is the subject of my new book, Buddhas as Buddha Does, the Ten Transformative Practices. This is Buddhism 101. You can read it all about it. You know, it's easy to find on the web or in my books or in numerous books. I don't think Shyla has any books yet, but you should squeeze her a little, get her to work harder. It's kind of good. good. Shyla knows a lot. She straightened me out today about a few things about the Satipatthana Sutra and mindfulness and a few other things while we were riding around in her jalopy. <laughs> Lost. If you want, if your books are too tiring and old-fashioned, just go on YouTube. You can find my 10-minute spiel about Buddhism 101, the Four Truths, and the Eightfold Path. It's not that hard to find. But how do we find Buddha's enlightenment experience ourselves? I think that's the real question. Anywhere, anytime. You know, the Western religions are called, if you study these things, world religion, sociology, religion, history, religions of the book, the three Western monotheistic religions, I'm not going to remind you what they are. You can remember, perhaps, the three Western religions that we know so little about but seem more familiar to us than Eastern religions. 
religions of the book. Buddhism is not a religion of the book. Of course, there are voluminous sutra scriptures, a hundred volumes at least of the sutra scriptures, Buddhist canon, and so on, sutras, Vinaya, and Abhidharma, and later commentaries, and all that. But it's not a religion of the book. Buddhism is based on the Buddha's enlightenment experience, the enlightenment experience that Buddha promised anybody can experience by pursuing, cultivating, developing such a path. I don't like to say following such a path. Buddha didn't advocate followership. He didn't want to be worshipped. He didn't want to have images of himself and so on. Of course, human nature being what it was later, things like that came about. But Buddha promised that anybody, I mean, Buddha was kind of scientific, an early scientist in a way, among other things. Let me just float this here since we're in Silicon Valley, and you know, many of you probably have engineering or scientific bent. As does Sharla, actually. I know Sharla's quite the mathematician, if you don't know. I just want to mention that. She's very sharp. Buddha's teaching was very scientific. He said, if you reproduce this experiment of the Eightfold Path, you can replicate the same results in yourself. Is that not the essence of the scientific method? Not needing any beliefs, cosmology, creed, dogma. He didn't say you have to believe in rebirth. He didn't say you have to be a vegetarian. He didn't even say you have to sit and meditate cross-legged till your knees and back fall out. Meditation is about awareness practice, not about posture, after all. So if we replicate Buddha's experiment, we can reproduce his result, and millions have. Not just only one begotten son of Buddha, you know, like Jesus, the only begotten son. We have to find the Christos, the light in all of us, the Godhead in all of us, in each of us. That's what we call in Buddhism, Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature, the innate Buddhiness in all sentient beings. That we're all endowed with the luminous Buddha nature, not just human beings, not just Buddhists, not just our friends and neighbors here in the upper middle path. <laughs> Look around the room, friends and neighbors. Not just human beings, all sentient beings endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. This is a radical egalitarian democratic war cry in 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago before women could vote, before blacks were franchised and so forth. Buddha said anybody could become as enlightened as he did, male or female, young or old. Let me go further, and he may not have said this, Buddhist or otherwise. You don't have to be a Buddhist to become a Buddha. If you replicate this experiment, you can reproduce these results. Then you'd be better than most Buddhists who are still just joiners of the newest fad, the newest club. Why become a mere Buddhist when you become a Buddha? So in Tibetan, in the Dzogchen tradition, and I'm just translating from the Tibetan here, I never had an original thought in my life. I don't know, did you? In the Havadra Tantra, the Dzogchen Tantra says, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to realize that fact, to realize who and what we are, realize our true nature, our original nature, our Buddhiness. Even calling it Buddha nature makes it sound too foreign. Oh, Buddha. A long dead white male that used to live over there in the East Coast somewhere. East. Buddha. That's heresy. Buddha's not outside. Buddha's not a person. Buddha's a mirror. 
It's an icon, archetype of enlightenment in which to see our own enlightened nature. That's what the teacher is for. Not to collect mirrors, to see our own enlightened nature. Not to collect gurus, teachers, and so forth, and experiences. But to look in the mirror of the enlightened experience and recognize who and what we truly are. We're all Buddhas by nature, not Buddhists. Buddhas by nature, according to the non-dualistic or direct access teaching of Mahamudra Dzogchen, the non-dual teaching of Zen. We can also find this deep in the Theravadan scriptures, the unconditioned, our true nature, the unconditioned, of which all conditions are like the form of the unconditioned nature of all things. That is our luminous Buddha nature. Beyond Buddha, isms and schisms or forms, not just Buddha statue sitting in the garden meditating. You know, Buddha didn't sit and meditate all day. He was a social activist also for 45 years walking all over India. This is what my new book's about, that meditation and prayer and yoga are very good and important. And we all need to add this contemplative dimension to our busy, westernized, modern life, of course. But it's not enough. We all have to make a positive contribution in the world and participate. No one of us can do it all, but no one is exempt from participating. And we're all in the same boat. We all rise or fall, sink or swim together. This is the raison d'etre, the reason for being of Mahayana Buddhism, the great vehicle of universal deliverance, realizing how can I be happy and at peace if my family, my neighbors, my country, and my world is in crisis, at war, and environmental disaster. How can I rest on my nirvanic laurels? So it's a balance between working on ourselves and working together you know, to transform the world. Awakening ourselves awakens the world. As the Zen teaching says, according to Zen teaching, Buddha said, you know, we often hear people say, Buddha said, Buddha said, but I think it's good to have context. According to the Zen teaching, Buddha said, when I was awakened, all were awakened, even the rocks and the trees. Now that's a very powerful statement, if it resonates with you. If it doesn't, never mind. He's talking about primordial perfection. As the Christian mystics sang, I forget her name, all is well and all shall be well in this best of all possible worlds. This is not to ignore the horrors and injustices, world hunger, racism, and other things in our benighted world, of course. And yet, we need to balance this by seeing the other side of the darkness, which is the light, the shadows are nothing but light. We're not all bad. If we get to know ourselves better, we might learn to love and appreciate ourselves. Like it says in Tibetan, um, the Dzogchen master Longchenpa, the vast infinite master, he said, of course in Buddhism we always get stuck with the word mind when we talk in English. The heart-mind is magnificent in its natural state. Appreciate it as it is. You know, we don't all have to put our best foot forward all the time. Authenticity is what he's talking about, friends, not mind. The heart, mind, spirit is gorgeous, magnificent in its natural state, appreciated as it is. That means we have to see it as it is, though. How can we see it as it is when we're so bent out of shape, when we're intoxicated, when our views are distorted, when we have short-sightedness, long-sightedness, far-sightedness, nearsightedness, jaundice, see everything, why things is yellow. When we're bent out of shape, we can't tell upside from down. How can we see things as they are? Which, by the way, is the definition of wisdom in Buddhism, the first step on the Eightfold Path. 
right view or, or, or wise view, clear visions. Is wisdom in Buddhism, right? Seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. This is not a theory about emptiness or impermanence or shunyata or cosmology or rebirth or infinite lifetimes. We're not talking about omniscience or any magical powers. Wisdom in Buddhism, prajna, punya, jnana, is seeing things as they are, a combination of clear awareness and direct comprehension or understanding things, insight and awareness. But how can we clarify our vision? How is it true that when Buddha was awakened, all were awakened? When most of us feel like crap most of the time. I mean, how many prescriptions for antidepressants are there in America today? For Ritalin, five million children, and so on. How can we see things as they are when our, our view, our gaze, our attention is so scattered, distracted, and obscured? Obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, the traditional three poisons taught by Buddhism. Obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, pride, and jealousy, the five poisons. Obscured by all kinds of prejudices, interpretations, and misknowing. According to our school of Buddhism, again, context is all important. Ignorance, not knowing, misknowing, avidya. Avidya is the root of all evil. Now you will hear in Buddhist teachings, I feel like I'm uh, giving the, the, the law thing at the beginning of the court trial. You will hear in this trial many other reports from different learned witnesses of different schools. <laughs> but <laughs> you will hear that desire or attachment is the root of all suffering. That is actually not really a very good translation or understanding. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion, avidya, is the root poison. That's why Buddhism stresses wisdom. Wisdom is the antidote to avidya, ignorance. Wisdom is the antidote, the panacea for all that ails us. It's the ignorance, it's the not knowing that brings the desire and aversion, greed and hatred, desire and aversion. From not knowing... At the center of the wheel of becoming is avidya, is ignorance. That's why enlightenment is the panacea, is the cure-all, wisdom, the wisdom of enlightenment, Buddha's enlightenment experience. The archetypal enlightenment experience, represented by Buddha as a symbol that we also can have by reproducing experiment. We can replicate those results. We can become awakened, enlightened too, and realize our Buddha nature, our inherent freedom of being and completeness, realizing peace at any speed, inner peace, is beyond any speed. We can be centered and experience inner serenity and fulfillment, inner peace at any speed, even if we have to hurry sometimes. You know, sometimes you have to hurry. No problem. You don't always have to walk in slow motion like a zombie, like I see sometimes at certain meditation retreats that I've been in charge of. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they've taken too much medication or they're practicing mindful walking. You never know. You know, people, they're always walking around in slippers. They never put on their shoes for 10 days. It's very, um, you know, it has certain commonalities with other uh, institutions. <laughs> I mean, I was in a three-year retreat. I didn't put on my shoes for three years. I walked around in slippers all the time. It was like a 
30-year-old old fuddy-duddy. It was very amusing. But we were trying, treading the path, hopefully. So how can we clear our vision? That's where Buddhism, I think, has a real you know, secret to offer. Not the secret that's not a secret of power, positive thinking that we see in the marketplace today, but really the secret ingredient of mindful awareness, the most powerful force in the world, spiritual consciousness, mindful awareness. It's not atomic energy. It's, you know, it's the mind that cracked the atom and released the atomic energy that was already there. And it's spiritual self-realization or insight and wisdom that cracks the ego and releases the energy, the infinite energy that we have all contained, caught up in holding our ego trip together. That's why enlightened masters are so universally, regardless of tradition, buoyant, spontaneous, free, creative, and at the same time, peaceful. I'm a skeptic. I'm a New York Jew. I mean, on my parents' side, anyway. (laughs) But I know at least one llama that never sleeps. Now, I'm not here to tell you fairy stories about flying and you know, past lives or anything else, which, you know, I mean, everything's anything's possible. But I've known him since he was 10 years old. He's 44 now. His own is Drukcha Rinpoche. He never sleeps. I mean, he might doze for half an hour, but he beds in pajamas and night are not part of his routine. Because he meditates and he's at rest and he's the 12th incarnation. He's been doing this a long time, according to his tradition. And he doesn't have to sleep. He says sleeping makes him weak or tired. The spirit is the most powerful thing in the world. I have seen this. I've lived with him since he was 10 years old. I've known him. I was his English teacher in the early 1970s at his monastery in Darjeeling. I'm not making this up. You know, I don't tell stories of magical mystery from Tibet stories like some do. Anything's possible. The awakened spirit, the, the Buddha mind, awareness itself, awareness, which is able to capital A, is the most powerful force in the world. That is Buddha's secret ingredient. And that's what we practice. Even the first day we learn to meditate. It's like skiing. You know, one of the great things about skiing, and I, I think you have skiing here, right, up in Tahoe or somewhere, is that you can ski on the first day. There's the bunny slope. You can ski. You can go fast. It's exciting, skiing. You know, it's hard to get up on a surfboard the first day. It's hard to get up on water skis maybe the first day. But skiing, you can actually do the first day. That's like meditation. Cultivating awareness you can do right away. Now, you might not experience blissful peace and ease. You might not experience the concentrative absorptions, the eight jhanas or other stages of development of insight and so on. But you can definitely experience something, which is the point of transformative spirituality, not just congregational spirituality, joining and community and good works, but transformative personal practice. So we can become like these archetypal masters of the past, Buddha or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be, or Jesus or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be. No problem. Meditation, awareness, practice, cultivating mindfulness is the active ingredient in all practices. Prayer without awareness is just parroting prayers. It has very little benefit. It's awareness, it's the mindfulness, the concentration in the prayer, the intention, the concentration that makes prayers active. Chanting, I mean, parrots can chant, 
My late guru, the 16th Buddha Karmapa, in his monastery in Sikkim, he had hundreds of birds in an aviary uh, on his rooftop. He was famous kind of amateur ornithologist. He loved birds. Being an old Tibetan guy from Tibet, he didn't speak English. He, I mean, he called my parents mother and father, which they loved, but those were maybe the only two words he knew. He used to say that those birds were the reincarnation of the, 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 the lazy or fallen monks that he had in the last life. <laughs> but he, they still were, you know, they were still um, chanting. He taught them to chant mantra. So they used to chant his mantra, Kamapacheno. You'd go up on the roof and he'd be there feeding them and they'd be going, Kamapacheno, Kamapacheno. You know, like kind of a parrot. But prayers without attention without intention and attention, without mindfulness, concentration, awareness, a very little power. Yoga without awareness, it's only a calisthenic. But with awareness, you know, the eight-limbed yoga and all, there's so many levels to yoga. Yoga means union with the divine or union with the natural state. Tibetan definition, union with the natural state, since we are missing the divine up there in Tibet. He's down in India in many ways, places. Yoga without awareness is just mere calisthenics, good only for momentary health. So awareness is the active ingredient. That's why I think meditation and yoga are so popular in this country today. These are the active transformative practices, meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, the samadhi that comes with it that people are really getting a lot out of. It's a different kind of exercise, isn't it? Including like the corpse pose at the end of yoga. My wife says, I hate meditating. I say, but you love the corpse pose. She said, no, but that's yoga. And after doing yoga for an hour, lying down in the corpse pose for five or ten minutes is almost effortless. That's meditation. That's why a little chanting or a little bowing or some supportive practices could be very helpful to get to that effortless meditation. So it's not such a struggle. That's why in Tibetan Buddhism, we always have a meditation session divided into three parts. Just a little practical tip. There's the warm-up exercises, there's the main practice, and there's the cooling down, like exercise, physical exercise. The warm-up exercises, like praying or bowing, altar practice or chanting and breathing exercises, to warm up and relax, to turn our busy, worldly minds to the Dharma. The preliminaries first. And then the main non-conceptual awareness alone, naked awareness practice of just being without forms and prayers and words. And then third, going out singing, praying and chanting, generating loving kindness, sharing the merits, the positivities, concluding all in our prayers and so on. So three parts of a practice. So we do a little warm-up practice, like the little yoga, spiritual yoga is a praying and breathing and chanting and whatever, bowing. And then can just rest in the nature of awareness with less action. We, the warm-up practices help us undo our habitual, our big habit to overdo things. So we can just be. Then we can be a little. Then we go out with a little more doing that we can take it into the world through spiritual activism, compassion and action, service, karma, yoga, and so forth in our life. So I recommend that to you, especially if you're new at meditating. Now I know here you're well-trained here in the Bay Area, Yana. But I just thought that that might be a little helpful to realize it's very hard sometimes to just get up in the morning and meditate without a little warm-up, spiritual warm-up. It's very hard just to come home from work, leap into lotus position, and meditate when the momentum of the day is still running. So 
I like to, you know, come home and then maybe change my clothes and take a shower or exercise or do yoga and then begin a meditation session with a little chanting and praying and lighting a candle, a little altar practice, get the senses involved, you know, get involved. Take this momentum of the day of intense karmic involvement and turn it into spiritual involvement. And then, after that, turning into spiritual involvement with the warm-up exercises, the preliminaries, then get into the non-doing, the just being, the awareness alone. And in that way, balancing doing and being in our practice, effort and non-effort, some directed or structured practice and some more structureless, trusting, choiceless, total awareness practice a very good balance of doing and being, effort and effortless in our meditation. What we call in Tibetan balancing meditation with non-meditation. Non-meditation is a very sophisticated term. It doesn't mean what everybody's doing in general, just running around following the nose like animal. It means a, an effortless awareness, like when concentration is stable and it stays where it's placed. In the beginning, we have to cultivate placement of concentration, Right? Placing it on an object of attention like the breath or a candle flame. Placing it and getting it to stay there. And when it wanders, bringing it back with the leash of mindfulness, bringing the wandering attention back to the object of concentration. After a while, it gets more stable and can just rest there. And then we can use it deeper to get insight into nature reality, wisdom and understanding. And the deepest meditation is the balance of concentration and insight where it's panoramic and yet focused. Panoramic awareness, yet focused, not spaced out. So the Dzogchen teachings, and I want to get to the question period because that's really the ju- juiciest part usually. The Dzogchen teachings, of course, are the natural great perfection teachings of Tibet are, of course, based in the root teachings, the Sutrayana, the Theravadan teachings, and the Mahayana sutras of the Bodhisattva way of universal enlightenment, and thinking of others before oneself, and so on. Compassion and wisdom inseparable, the Mahayana Bodhisattva path. But the Dzogchen teachings take it to another level of non-dual direct access enlightenment now in this way. Having already understood a little bit, gotten into the spiritual game, cleaned up our life and our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and good deeds, through concentration and collectedness, straightening our mind out like a Fletcher straightens the arrows. We straighten our mind out through meditation. Then comes a more wisdom understanding of interconnectedness and impermanence. So building on that, three basic Buddhist trainings that you're all familiar with, ethics, shila, samadhi, concentration, meditation, and third, wisdom, yes, shila, samadhi, panya, yes, ethical discipline, meditation, wisdom, from the ground up, the three liberating trainings that if you unpack it, it form the Eightfold Path. Buddhism 101, the three liberating trainings of the Eightfold Path. The non-dual teachings talk about swooping down from above through view into the meditation of non-meditation, of natural awareness, and then to action or conduct in the world. Not building up, climbing up the spiritual path gradually from below, cleaning up our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and virtue and cultivating the positives and relinquishing the negatives and purifying ourselves of obscuring kalashas and all, leading to more concentration and clarity, leading to wisdom and insight. But swooping down from above with the natural awareness, the innate awareness, 
our natural spirituality. It's already there, like through interest. When we're interested, we have natural mindfulness, natural awareness. Swooping down from above with the view of the great perfection of seeing things just as they are, beyond having to improve or purify or tweak them at all. Acceptance, clear seeing and understanding. Swooping down with the view into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being. And noticing all the karmic conditionings that make it hard for us to just be. And seeing what we get out of following all these impulses. And so we can choose more intelligently and be more free and less reactive, more proactive, less reactive. Like through mindful awareness, creating some space between stimulus and response. Some space for mindfulness to give us choice between stimulus and knee-jerk blind response. Create the sacred pause, as Tara Brock calls it in her wonderful book, Radical Acceptance. Create the sacred pause through mindfulness. Give our mind more spacious time between stimulus and response to choose a more skillful, intelligent response rather than react, respond proactively. So swooping down with the view of things as they are, clear vision, everything a lawful unfolding just as it is, good and bad, beyond good and bad, as it is, into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being wholly, totally incandescently, lucidly present. And through that comes the natural Buddha activity, selfless, beneficial, bodhisattva activity, liberating activity. View, meditation, action. Beginning with the view. Now this is actually based in the Buddhist approach, the Eightfold Path, Remember, it does not begin with Sheila. It begins from above with wisdom. Yes? Step one and two on the Eightfold Path are wisdom. Clear vision, right view is number one. And right intention or right understanding is number two. That's the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. If we had a board, it would be easy to see. Yes? And then the next three, right speech, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then the next three, wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So Buddha himself said, you know, it must begin with the view to understand a little bit, to guide the meditation practice and the good deeds. So theory and practice go together like the two wings of a bird. Sometimes we're too technique-oriented and all we think about is the practice, the meditation, which is okay. But if we don't understand what we're doing, then you know sometimes we're just sitting there trying not to think. That's not meditation. That's just thought suppression or thought wiping. We're not getting paid by the minute. There's no point sitting there and dozing and trying to sit longer. It's about quality, not quantity. Quality of awareness, not quantity. Quality of presence of mind, not quantity of time. There are a lot of different meditation techniques, but they all revolve around the cultivation of awareness, the nowness awareness, present awareness. So there's a lot more we could say about this, but I just want to prime the pump and put a few uh, newish ideas out. They're not new, but you know, I know that Shyla's mainly concentrating on her Theravada side these days. So I thought I'd just spice it up with a few, um, you know, tantric uh, spices or exaggerations that she accuses me of. Even the Buddha, I was just reading something, some notes that Shiloh gave me today, because Shiloh was telling me that the Buddha made some jokes, so we were looking into the sutras to try to find some, which we haven't found yet, but I'm sure she'll, <laughs> she'll find some if she has to retranslate all this short, middle, and long discourses. But 
I read, there's a, a, an interesting story in there where um, Sabuti, who was a great enlightened um, arhat master, you know, not a schlepper, a real arhat master, I think it was Sabuti, he said um, something about the Buddha is the ultimate, greatest, most enlightened, omniscient being or something. You know, of course, there's a whole paragraph repetitive in the old style with all these superlatives. He was telling it to some faithful people that were questioning that. And Buddha said to Sabuti, how do you know? Have you checked with the minds of all the enlightened ones of the past, present, and future and all the enlightened arhats to know that I am the most supreme enlightened blah, 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 blah. See, he busted Sabuti, who I think was probably an arhat by then. So that's important. It's important to be humble. You know, There's always somebody who's um, more humble than you. <laughs> There's always some, somebody, you know. So in our tradition, in a lineage, we always, it's very hard to be too arrogant or proud when we think about our masters and those who have gone before and how, how great they are, how deep and how generous and how gracious and how wise and how they practiced for so many decades that we can't take ourselves too seriously after a few, you know, being veteran of a few foreign retreats. So in closing, I just want to quote the great uh, Buddhist saying, you just can't believe everything that you think. Thank you all. Good night. Good night.